Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 39, Our Year of Living Historically. Well, you are listening to this, or at least this episode is dropping on March 12th, 2021, which puts us almost exactly a year since our school shut down and we were left bereft of classrooms, bereft of offices. And uh, so I went back into our extremely long text thread at this point and found the text that one day will probably be in a museum somewhere. I don't know how you put a text in a museum, but <laughs> this one will be there. This is from March 14th, 2020. Our school shut down on March 13th. I text you, I think we should take this as an opportunity to record our podcast. Something that we had been <laughs> texting back and forth. I found another text from April 2019 talking about the podcast as well. Um, and you respond, podcast in the time of cholera? You're right. Uh, what's our angle? We need a range of timely topics from pop culture to politics with a historical perspective. And I responded, how about finally two white guys with something to say as our, uh, as our thing? So that was, the, that was the birth of this thing. Now, I don't want to spend this time necessarily, you know, uh, you know, patting ourselves on the back or anything. But what you know, we want to talk about is what this podcast has meant to us um, as, as, as historians, as thinkers, as scholars, as teachers. Um, and so that's what we want to spend this week's episode doing. We're not going to get into the weekly news. We're not going to do uh, really other segments. We, we want to explore this past year um, of our lives living historically in a way that we really hadn't uh, up, up to that point, I would say. No, and I don't think we could have uh, predicted. You know, it would be give, giving us way too much credit to think that somehow, you know, we understood what was coming down the pike. Um, we had a name. History Against the Grain. We had a, a subtitle, a History Without Borders. And we had some, uh, I guess what we could call, what, some, some you know, pet projects uh, and, um, you know, sort of pet issues maybe that we've carried with us over the years as, as historians. But that initial interest uh, and that, that, that sort of critical mass that we brought into that first episode a year ago uh, was, uh, you know, was, a, was about to be taken up by, you know, a kind of uh, tsunami <laughs> yeah. of, of, you know, global and national uh, happenings that would pretty dramatically not only uh, determine what would be the content of our, of our show, you know, now uh, here we are, as you said, episode 39. So, so you figure it gave us enough to talk about for 38 episodes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, did more than that. It dramatically, uh, I think for both of us, uh, both challenged and altered our own fundamental understandings of what it, what it is that we do and, and want to do going forward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned that this, we had some things, some themes already in place before we started. I, I mentioned uh, that we had been texting about this for over a year by the time we, we actually started it. I found the text from uh, April 2019 
And I literally said, first episode should be you, Chris, making the case for getting rid of the U.S. survey. And we actually, we did that. That was the one, the one part of the plan that actually played out exactly like we intended. Everything else, you know, we kind of uh, improvised on the fly, but that one we, uh, we followed up on. So it was funny to find that. Yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, what, what we had to ask ourselves, you know, was, uh, you know, how, in other words, this can't, uh, like you said, you know, a couple of white dudes, you know, riffing on, on you know, on, on, on their work, or their jobs, their nine to fives, you know, maybe would only have, <laughs> I think it's fair to say, so much interest for, you know, any mm-hmm. kind of audience. Uh, but... We, I think, understood in some basic way that it was going to have to connect, you know, with our with our uh, with our lives. Now, it, it, look, it might be stretching credulity to say that even before the the quarantine, even before the the pandemic, there were already some things that were pretty clearly going off the rails. You know, so yeah. it wasn't as if we were just cruising along. <laughs> You know, uh, and and Ob- suddenly oblivious to the world around us. Yeah. R- right, right. I mean, you know, we had uh, we were three years into the insanity of, of the Trump regime, and and not just the figure of Donald Trump, but also the movement that he unleashed. You know, the depth of American nativism, racism. Uh, you know, policing conspiracy conspiracy theory. I mean, all these things that seem so. You know, in some ways, so. Um, you know, inextricably tied to Trump's presidency, you know, actually have also have deep roots in American history. It's why he was yes. able to to um, so successfully exploit them. But, um, you know, I'm thinking, you know, as we had the title, so we knew we were going to go against the grain. We had a quote, basically, and you you were the one that seized on it, Josh, from the writings of, of Walter Benjamin, the philosopher, historian, literary critic of the mid-20th century, you know, one of the really sort of the giants of that that intellectual movement, right, of the mm-hmm. mid-20th century. Uh, and, and so we had a quote from Benjamin. I want to read it again, part of it. He said, there has never been a document of culture which is not simultaneously one of barbarism. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you got to read more, right? And just as yeah. it is itself not free from barbarism, neither is it free from the process of transmission in which it falls from one set of hands into another. The historical materialist, says Benjamin, thus moves as far away from this as measurably possible. He regards it as his task to brush history against the grain. And there's a lot to chew on there, you know, but I think the the thing that that appealed to both, both of us was this idea that there is some sort of received or inherited or established notion be it of culture or national identity that gets transmitted, as he says, from one hand, one set of hands to another. But it's that idea that inherent in that uh, inheritance, you know, uh, mm-hmm. is uh, something uh, he, the word he uses is barbarism, yeah. right? And that if you don't brush history against the grain, if you don't go against the grain of that received tradition, then that that darker element, you know, that 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 tradition of injustice or oppression or barbarism won't ever be really revealed. It'll just stay hidden and the 
what I like to call the, you know, the, the, the greeting card version of the story will just keep getting passed around from recipient to recipient. And we knew, I think, at base that, that that's something we wanted to explore, right? Yeah. And, you know, the cool thing, I think, is that on the one hand, you know, that, that quote fit in with what we were thinking about, right? The, the reason we called our, our podcast that is because I saw that quote and it just seemed to, it resonated, right? Mm-hmm. That, oh, this is the kind of stuff we want to talk about. But the quote also, I think, influenced how we were going to talk about the, 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 this stuff, right? Reading Benjamin, right? So it wasn't just we took these the, the, this title, you know, context-free out of, out of his writings. It's that, right. you know, again, it reflected what we were thinking yes. and reflected back on how we were going to, to think, exactly. think about this. And I think one of the, one of the key things, you did, you did a beautiful job talking about you know the quote itself and and and, and what uh, what it means and how we we saw it, but I think that link between power and knowledge, which is is so fundamental, um, he's also taking that to task and, and and identifying that, and that's one of the things I think we've you know been really acutely aware of since the beginning is that when you do these greeting card types of history that you were talking about, you know what you're really serving is you're serving you're serving power, right? You're serving mm-hmm. hegemony. Mm-hmm. You're playing into, you're, you're playing a role, right? You're, you're mm-hmm. a, a, a collaborator in that power. And I think that's something that we understood right from the beginning is that, and, and I don't know that we understood it necessarily in a way that we could quite talk about yet, but that we had this at least idea that we did not want to be doing history in service of the prevailing political structure, the prevailing power structure mm-hmm. within the society. And, 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 I think that, you know, has remained pretty true uh, or very true, I would say, throughout these 38, now 39 episodes. Yeah, I like that a lot, Josh. You know, I was feeling somehow implicated already. Uh, You know, I I came home one night after commuting, uh, you know, uh, to the South Bay Area from from Sacramento and, you know, told uh, Jenny, told my wife when I walked in, you know, I said, I'm, you know, I'm guilty. (laughs) I'm I'm Mm. implicated in something here. Because of the story, in effect, the, the curriculum model called U.S. history, you know, that, that I go in every semester and teach. And, and for a long time, I thought maybe, well, now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm teaching a, an edgier version. I'm, I'm teaching, you know, the, the, the struggle, the black freedom struggle, you know, the, the movement for worker rights. You know, all the things we learned about in graduate school as part of the new histories, what were then the new histories of the 1980s and 1990s. But I realized there was something fundamentally wrong because I was teaching it inside the rubric of the na- the national history, you know. And so I didn't yet have necessarily the, the vocabulary or the, the conceptual insights. I mean, look, one of the people we've done a bit of a deep dive on, right, is, is Michel Foucault, yeah. uh, the French philosopher. And, and I don't know if I would have revisited Foucault the way that we did had it not been for the events that soon followed once we began doing the podcast. And, you know, Foucault, we found, uh, you know, a line from one of his works where he said, the story is itself a form of power. In other words, if you're telling mm-hmm. the history of the United States within that paradigm of the, of the nation state, and, and we'll talk about uh, Hayden White here in a second, but, you know, the, the way the story sets up, you know, is to essentially um, uh, uh, exonerate 
the nation state in its own history. If you're telling that story, even if you're doing this edgier subaltern, you know, history uh, from below stuff, if you're doing it within the paradigm of that national history, you in effect are being co-opted as part of that power structure that imposes itself, you know, on the various peoples, um, you know, who live within its governance, you know. So we like to think, oh, we're just telling the stories in class. But for a guy like Foucault, well, actually, you're part of that system. <laughs> yeah. No, and, you know, when you're talking about going back and reading Foucault, Foucault and, and you mentioned Hayden White as well, one of the real joys of, of, having, of, of doing this over the past year is that I probably read more than I had in the previous, you know, I don't know, maybe five years, something like that, or, or at least mm-hmm. thought historically, you know, that's going back to our title of, of, of the episode, thought historically in a way that I hadn't really in, in a while. And, um, you know, ultimately what we have, you know, these jobs are not nine to five jobs, but our job had been, you know, you go down from the third floor to the second floor or the first floor of our building and you, your students are there and you talked about history and you've got your curriculum, you've got your structure and you can, you know, at a certain point, you know, three, four five years in, it's, it's, it can be pretty rote, right? You know what you want to say, you know how you're going to say it, you know more or less how the students are going to react to it. You can anticipate the questions they're going to have. It can be engaging, certainly, mm-hmm. but it's not the same as having the kind of conversations that we have had over the past year. You know, we used to uh, meet up in the hallways. Our offices are pretty close to each other mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, dig into some of this stuff. But it would usually be like the five minutes before class, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the 10 minutes before class. And while that would, you know, kind of excite my historical imagination, there really is no substitute to just having a hour long conversation, hour and a half long conversation with right. another historically yeah. minded person. And, and I feel very lucky to have been able to have all these conversations with you over the last year. And then our, our amazing guests as well, um, who've all in various ways opened my eyes and our eyes, I think, to different ways of thinking about the past. Um, and, you know, I, I can't remember if you had said this, you've said this already, but I fundamentally think I'm a better historian now than I was a year ago. I'm a more thoughtful historian now than I was a year ago, more curious historian than I was a a year ago. And all it took was doing this thing that I love, which is studying history and turning it into something more than just this job I do four days a week, five days a week, but, but something that also I want to come back from, from school when we used to go to a a place or, you know, and a meeting uh, as I did today and, and get right on the mic with you and talk more about it. And then when I'm done talking to you, going to another meeting with students and then in many ways, you know, rehashing what we had talked about, but doing it for the students now. Um, and so it's just informed my thinking in so, so many ways, informed my teaching in so many ways. And I, I, I absolutely feel like a, a, a transformed historian because of, of what we've been doing. Yeah. And for me, I mean, look, I guess what I you know, what I'm trying to say is that for me, it was would I continue to feel like I was complicit Mm-hmm. in the, you know, the, the sort of his, historical uses of power, you know, by, 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 let's say, the national sovereign, you know, um, that included things like, you know, genocide and war and slavery. You know, would I continue to feel like I was somehow complicit in that story form? Or would I learn another form of storytelling, you know, in other words, it, it you know, whether it was in, in lecturing for students or, you know, what have you, um, 
and and I think that the probably the, the the threshold moment for that I, I you can you can speak to this Josh but I I think I'm close here was certainly um, the killing of George Floyd in May yeah of no, 2020 absolutely. because yeah. in, a, in a in a basic way you know the old the the old union line you know was which side are you on you know mm-hmm. that we had a moment like that with with George Floyd and for me personally it crystallized these misgivings that I've been carrying around, you know, f- for a while. And I can almost, I can almost measure it in the telling of, 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 of another quote using Walter Benjamin's History Against the Grain, but this time uh, by Saidiya Hartman. And, you know, we talked about Saidiya Hartman in, in the last episode. We've mentioned her from time to time, but she's one of these scholars that has provided us with now a kind of new language for understanding how we could be complicit not, not because we were intending to be complicit in these crimes, let's say, of history, but because, as Foucault would say, we, we were telling the stories that were complicit mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in these crimes. And so, uh, yes, Idea Hartman's quote was, the efforts to brush history against the grain requires excavations at the margins of monumental history, the margins of monumental history, in order that the ruins of the disremembered past be retrieved, turning to forms of knowledge and practice not generally considered legitimate objects of historical inquiry or, or appropriate or adequate sources for history making and attending to the cultivated silences, exclusions, relations of violence and domination that engender the official accounts. Uh, so therein lies in that one very <laughs> full-bodied uh, quote of Saidiya Hartman's, this idea that if we were not going to be complicit any longer in the telling of the wrong stories, that we had to have a much keener understanding of how these stories were constructed in the first place, including the courses we teach, uh, and how they were themselves engineered in some basic way, you know, um, retrofitted, as we sometimes say, you know, to the needs of a system that we no longer felt uh, was, was really capable of addressing social or racial justice issues like that of George Floyd. In other words, this was the system. You know, George Floyd was a, a victim of a system that has now for nearly 400 years, you know, taking us back to the early modern era, been predicated, you know, on this kind of violence. And and we both, because we both attended some of the protests that followed in the wake of George Floyd's killing. And the one that we, that, that one sort of meme that we seized upon was how can you reform a system that's doing exactly what it was designed to do? And yeah. if we keep telling the story of the system the way we do, in effect, you know, we're implicated. So, yeah, for me, what that Saidiya Hartman quote means is that we had to basically start, very nearly start over. Yeah, and I, I think a lot about something you said. It must have been around this time. Um, but you said, I'm paraphrasing. You can correct me if I got your quote wrong. But we need stories that heal us, not to make us sicker. Um, and I, I, I quote that all the time <laughs> to my students, actually, mm-hmm. um, because it, it really does wrap up a lot of of our mission statement i think that that you know that the trajectory that we've been 
told history follows is just it, it's not doing any good at this point, that it's not serving a moral purpose. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I think we've tried to be really clear about in, uh, throughout these, these episodes is that you can't do history without some kind of moral center, right? That objectivity. Oh. I think we talked yeah. about objectivity maybe in yep. episode two or something like that. Right. That, that objectivity does not exist and is not, even if it did, is not the point of view you necessarily want to do history from. Um, that ultimately there has to be some sense of morality, some sense of justice, some sense of, you know, social justice, use the, the phrase that, that we use so often these days. Um, and any attempt to, to tell history that does not address those things is going to be a history that, that maintains the prevailing structures of, of power and authority and, and, and knowledge and all that. And, and, you know, we did not want to be a part of that uh, any longer. And, and, you know, it, it does point to the fact that while we did have some broad ideas, some parameters for what this podcast was going to be, one of the things that's been so significant, I think, is is that we have improvised as we've gone along. Right? We figured stuff out as we've gone along, that this has been a journey for us um, to a new way of thinking about history. And, and not to say that we're pioneering anything. I'm saying personally for a new way of, mm-hmm. of for me to think about history. Mm-hmm. Than, than the way we started. You know, on the one hand, our, our subtitle is A History Without Borders, as, as you mentioned. That's, you know, that's not really creating many parameters. A history without, without borders basically means everything. But as a mission statement, I think the, the goal and, and the idea behind that was that we wanted to try to approach history in a way that we weren't going to allow these constructed boundaries to, to mm-hmm. limit what we thought about. I, I, I used a metaphor long time back in, in the episodes um, about being on a freeway, you're on a freeway with no off ramps, right? And you can drive down that freeway and you can follow it along and you can even look out the window and see the things that are flying by. But anytime you actually wanted to, to really explore those things, you couldn't do it. You were still stuck on that same freeway. You could see interesting things. You could see, you know, alternate uh, paths, but you just couldn't take them. And so I think part of, of what we wanted to do is, is <laughs> to continue this, 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 metaphor probably too long, start building those off ramps, start allowing us to, to pull off the highway and, and, and stop and look around and see that there never was a single path. There never was a single road. There was all kinds of roads. They branched in all different directions. And the more you were willing to take those different routes, the more you were able to see. And, and the more you became aware of that lack of directionality, the lack of, you know, it turns out that freeway wasn't actually going anywhere. It was just going forever. Um, and so, so having that ability to to look in many directions, to see many different things, um, to, to not just be confined to, to, to one viewpoint has been uh, something that's, that's, I think, stayed with us throughout uh, throughout these episodes. Yeah, and I, I mean, just to entertain that metaphor uh, for a, a wee bit longer is that, uh, you know, the question is, well, who built this highway and, and <laughs> where are they trying to lead us? Yeah. You know, and by keeping us from taking certain off-ramps, let's say, you know, were they only preserving their interests rather than our interests? Uh, and if so, you know, how would we have to reimagine our purpose for being on that highway in the first place? And uh, I think one of the one of our own moments of, uh, you know, of, of departure <laughs> uh, from that, you know, from that, that highway was uh, reading about the journalist uh, Wesley Lowry, who was writing for the, the Washington Post and, and basically quit his job. Uh, in a dispute with his editor, uh, he had been in Ferguson during the the, the uh, 
you know, the racial justice protests there and had experienced firsthand police brutality and, and you know, the, 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 you know, the hot, uh, you know, sort of knife of, of racial injustice and, and you know, uh, what would come to coalesce uh, later in things like the Charlottesville uh, you know, uh, riot and and uh, he uh, was making the argument in, in the context of journalism that more than uh, you know being wedded to some notion of neutral objectivity, that what you know the the role of the journalist in times like these was to offer moral clarity, and we really seized upon that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, had found uh, in in going back and looking at at some of the historians I admired, I had found a a statement by uh, William Cronin. Uh, the, the great environmental historian uh, yeah. of America, Bill Cronin had written, uh, my deepest moral project is to understand the world, which is a really complicated task. And my moral conviction is that rich understanding of the world leads to better, more responsible and just action in the world. We so often act on the basis of our mythic conceptions. We believe our own lies and we're forever lying to ourselves because we want the world to conform to our convictions. Not letting ourselves do that is part of acting morally in the world. And, and there, I think, an important connection was made that just like journalists, you know, we as historians had maybe, um, you know, drank, drank the Kool-Aid too long, Josh, you know, and this idea of, of, of objectivity and neutrality and that sort of thing. When we realized that if we were going to tell stories that made us better, you know, rather than tell stories that made us sicker, we would have to stake out that kind of, uh, you know, territory of, of moral clarity. All right. So that, that was a lot of uh, great kind of general thoughts about about this past year. But what, what we want to do next is, as we move on to segment two, is talk a little bit about some of the major themes that we've uh, explored or developed over the course of these episodes. Because as, as we were talking about, we had a broad plan for this. But what's been interesting is is watching these threads that show up early on in these episodes and then run through the podcast, things that show up in one place and then keep reappearing. So let's let's get into the themes, the moments that stick out to us most as, as helping to define what this podcast has become. I think one of the first early themes that began to show up was this idea, which is something I, I certainly had thought about before, but never maybe articulated or, or has had been articulated clearly enough for me. But that what the, the what the purpose of history is, what history does, you know, the old idea was history is just, you know, describing the past and that, you know, history is a collection of facts. And if you collect enough facts, then you can create a story and then you can tell the story to your students and then they will have history. But what has become increasingly clear to me um, is that history exists to serve the present, not to describe the past. Um, and that we as historians need to be aware of the nature of these stories we tell because they have an effect on on the way we think about our world. And, you know, increasingly that we need to push back against histories that fail to make sense of our world. I think we quoted uh, Eric Foner a few weeks ago. He was uh, speaking to a class and he, he threw out this gem. He says, the history we were taught, meaning, you know, his generation, 
the history we were taught can't possibly explain the world we live in. And so that, you know, is part of something that's, that's continually showed up in our episodes is, is the idea that history needs to adapt itself to the needs of the times. As, as we talked about with Vincent Leong in, I think, episode nine, uh, the title of that episode was The Past is Political, that every choice we make about how we talk about the past is ultimately a political choice, not just a matter of selecting objective facts. God, and I tell you, the, the thing that brought that home to me, you know, like a thunderbolt mm-hmm. uh, in the in the George uh, Floyd killing was was also, you know, last summer we lost uh, John Lewis, the great civil rights champion. Yeah. And it, it was the juxtaposition, you know, of, of John Lewis's passing. You know, the thing that he is most famous for in the, in the civil rights history, undoubtedly, was the uh, episode at Selma, right, in 1965. But as we've seen, uh, you know, with, with, with the, uh, the attempted march, in other words, from, um, you know, from Selma and the, and the uh, Alabama State Police who, you know, with utter br- brutal force, uh, basically destroyed the march and left John Lewis, you know, bleeding and unconscious uh, on the ground there in Selma. Well, th- those scenes are familiar to us, but but the fact that they often get now packaged in what I like to call that kind of greeting card history where, you know, there's an unmistakable notion that somehow because this happened, because John Lewis survived it, we can say that John Lewis is heroic and we've all learned something valuable in American history is going in the right direction. But there we were last summer, Josh, with George Floyd dying on the streets of Minneapolis gasping for air, calling for his mother as this impassive face, seemingly soulless face of Jarek Chauvin's, you know, just look straight ahead. And and I thought, well, wait a minute. I thought because of John Lewis's sacrifice, this wasn't supposed to happen again, you mm. know. But, but, but here we were in May of 2020, and sure enough, it was happening uh, again. So it had us thinking. So so maybe the stories we're telling aren't the stories we think we're telling, or at least that the stories we're telling don't have what what the 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 consequence or outcome, or you know moral um, you know force that that we think they do, you know. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's like the line from the, the the old John Prine song, you know, Jesus died for nothing, I suppose. <laughs> well, it, and it just shows. I mean, it shows you the power of these of these narratives when the you know kind of the worst moments in in American history get co opted to serve the purpose of of mm-hmm. these ideas of progress. That mm-hmm. oh yeah, you got beat up on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, but um, but this is this moment, and now we can recognize this moment. And then you get to 2020, 2020 I forget what year it is. You get to twenty twenty, and <laughs> you you know still see people, still see police um, engaging in these violent acts against mostly people of color. Um, and, and you have to ask, well, what, what is the progress? Uh, the journalist Vincent uh, Bevins had this, this great uh, quote on, uh, on, on Twitter. He was talking about this, this, this idea of, of how, how progress is so instilled into the minds of, of the American populace. And I think a lot of people, not just Americans, but, you know, that progress is just this, this natural thing that, that, of course, happens. That, you know, the further you get into the, the future, the better things will be. So that, you know, I think his, his pithy question was, mm-hmm. uh, well, how, you know, how much better are things now than in, in 1971? Mm-hmm. He says, well, 50 years better. That's how much, <laughs> that's how much better. But, but the reality is, right, that once you get outside these, these comforting narratives, um, you start seeing John Lewis is not a 
a, a you know him getting beaten up and his skull fracture is not actually a positive moment on the path to progress. It's just another act of violence mm-hmm. used to limit who has voice, who has power, who has a say in this in the, in this country. And it was not the last moment, by the way, in which uh, in which that was made clear. So that's yeah, right. That was, yeah. Yeah, well, and if we insist on telling that story, say, to our students, as, you know, in this sort of triumphal march of the expanse of American liberty and the lessons we learn along the way, then again, what I was saying in the previous segment, that makes us complicit in some way in the injustice of that system, you know, because in effect, we're, we're telling a lie. And so it had me thinking a lot about how these stories get, these histories get, get constructed. And, you know, we, we talked... A lot last spring, you know, as I was flooding your, you know, your your text uh, inbox, you know, with with what I was reading in uh, Hayden White's uh, meta history, you know, his great work. I think, from the yeah, 70s. I think, I think I have that entire book in my text, right? Just with uh, underlines with your underlines, yeah. Yeah, who would ever thought these little devices, these little handheld devices, right? You know, could contain yeah. so much. Uh, energy or something, you know, uh, transcribed from, you know, the, the hard copy of, of the book into, uh, you know, the, the, the coded language of the text message. But, but nevertheless, I went back to, to Hayden White because the guy I had remembered, you know, from graduate school, I mean, very interested in what he had to say about the nature of historical narratives. And, uh, you know, one thing he, he said is that historians, well, we can be naive storytellers, you know, who either explicitly or implicitly use a more a mode of argument, as he calls it, to explain why things really happened. And that was in quotes, why things really happened. That's what we think we're doing, right, as historians. But to the extent that we're explicit about that mode of argument part, that is the way we construct our understanding of the way things happen, to the extent we're explicit about it, fine, we lay our cards on the table. But most of the time, those things are wrapped up. Those kinds of assumptions and presumptions are wrapped up somewhere in the, uh, what, the nether region of the stories we tell. They never quite see the light of day. And so I had gone back and I excerpted from what had been Hayden White's obituary in the New York uh, Times from a couple of years ago. Uh, where one of his uh, uh, colleagues, uh, Robert Doran, a professor at the University of Rochester, offered some thoughts on the work of Hayden White, because Hayden White wasn't especially popular in a lot of conventional history, academic history circles. You know, he was seen as one of these guys, Josh, that was calling into question the veracity, you know, of, of the stories we tell about the past. And, hey, if you know, if you want to be unpopular at a history conference, Hugh to that historians line, naive. Right? <laughs> Start by calling historians naive. That's a good, good yeah, place to exactly. Start so, uh, all right. So, here's what uh, Robert Doran said. He said, perhaps White's most controversial idea, and for one which he was so often shunned by his fellow historians, is that all stories are fictions. All mm-hmm. stories are fictions, including history stories, in other words, Josh, that if fiction means a story that has to be constructed or in some sense made up, even history stories are fictions. Uh, and so Durant continues, he says, White held that while historical facts are scientifically verifiable, stories are not. Stories are made not found in the historical data. Historical meaning is imposed on historical facts 
by means of the choice of plot type. And this choice is inevitably ethical and political at bottom, closed quote. So that's Robert Duran talking about Hayden White's ideas, including his ideas about what he called implotment. That is, when we tell history stories, we have the same options that are available to, say, novelists who tell stories or playwrights who tell stories, and they're relatively limited. There's really only four basic kinds of story implotment, says Hayden White. There's romance, comedy, tragedy, and satire. And for Hayden White, at least, all the stories, you know, with very few exceptions, all the stories that historians tell fit into one of those categories. And it had me thinking about the story we tell of U.S. history. And I thought, well, you know, it's either a romance or a comedy, you know, because <laughs> the two requirements of both of those storytelling implotments is that everything more or less works out in the end. And so if we tell the story of American history where John Lewis, you know, uh, skull fracture laying, you know, at the feet of Alabama troopers, white troopers, you know, that somehow that gets turned into an inspiring tale that shows how sacrifice and conviction and courage and all of those things are true of John Lewis. But it's the part that comes next in the implement that says that therefore it somehow confirms the promise of America. So mm -hmm. take your choice. Is that a romance or is it a comedy? The only, the only difference is that a comedy has a whole bunch of shenanigans going on right in the in the foreground. But in the end, even in the Shakespearean comedies, you know, it all gets resolved. And yet, as I watched George Floyd, all I could think of Hell, John, this was not resolved. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't fixed. The, the 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 quote that I used to always use from from White that um, it might be in my dissertation actually is he says lives are lived and stories are told, and that's just the most mm -hmm. the, the you know the clearest way of getting across that that viewpoint that a story told is a story made up essentially, um, which is very different from the lived experience of of people, and that when you try to fit every account into these these tropes that he talks about. Um, you're all you're you're forcing a point of view on on the reader on the consumer of mm -hmm. those histories because mm -hmm. nothing's inherently comedic nothing's inherently tragic it depends on who you're asking and who's who's reading the story um, but the story therefore has this huge amount of of power to take these 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 historical facts as he talks about and construct them into these things that then have a trajectory have a meaning and have an interpretation built built into them um, and that's that's very dangerous and and. You know, there have been many critiques of, of Hayden White, but whatever else he did, um, revealing to, to historians, opening up this idea that, you know, that what we're doing is far from objective, that we're always making choices, those choices have meaning, is hugely valuable. Um, and, and something that I think both of us have, have certainly uh, become more attuned to over this past year. Yeah, and I think it was absolutely... Uh both necessary and and almost required, you know, by the events that were playing out, you know, uh, in the streets of, of of this country. Because as you considered that kind of either romantic, let's say, triumphal implotment of U.S. history, you know, in, in juxtaposition to what we were seeing. And it wasn't only George Floyd, but it was also in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing, you know, where you're seeing federal shock troops being sent into places like Portland, 
right? Snatching people yeah. off the streets, you know, without giving any kind of uh, normal, you know, due process rights or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that that suddenly, to to keep you know insisting on that that triumphal story, that that romantic story or, uh, of of U.S. history, was you know was deeply dis- dishonest. And I tell you. Uh, it's you know one of our early guests, Vincent Lung, right? Whose yeah. whose book on, on on ancient history in China, you know, was dealing with many of these these issues. You know how how ancient Chinese historians fabricated history, constructed histories, um, you know, to either exonerate or to justify, you know, um, uh, dynastic claims. And and our other guest too, Ali Anushar. UC Davis uh, wrote a very similar book on the, uh, you know, the Central Asian dynasties and the telling uh, of history. But one thing Vincent said in particular, you know, um, sort of stayed with me, and I, I wanted to go back and, and, and bring it for our, our listeners. He said, the future is uncertain, for it is yet to come. The past, however, is no less uncertain. Docile and capacious, the field of the past has always been eminently susceptible to capitalization towards multitudinous ends, according to the order of the present. So Vincent Leong there uh, from his so book good. on yeah. early China. What do you think? That's, a, that's I think that's the last line in the book. Yeah, it's, it, it just hit me so hard at, at the time. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, talking to Vincent was was one of those moments that that really, you know, got me onto a, a, a new path of thinking about um, you know, the Chinese past, certainly, because I, I do teach these Asian history classes, but just about, you know, the, the way that this works, the way these 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 stories um, end up not, you know, revealing the past, but constructing the past. He had this line in our, uh, in when I was interviewing him, talking about Confucius and the way that Confucius understood as a, as a conservative, you know, for, for instance, um, the way that Confucius is, is understood as you know, being this guy who just cares about, uh, uh, you know, ancestors and this sort of thing. He says, there's no grandfathers in, in the Confucian Analects. There's not a single grandfather mentioned in the Confucian Analects. And that just blew me away. I think I quoted that, you know, 50 times in this past year mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it completely mm-hmm. reshaped the way that I, I thought about Confucius and therefore thought about the way that the Chinese have thought about their past over the course of, of these, these, these centuries that, you know, that they were doing the same thing that we are still doing today, which is creating a history that serves a convenient purposes and those purposes are almost always in 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 uh, support of of that power structure yeah i'm so glad you said that um we, we've been incredibly fortunate to have such a, a a rich and deep bench you might say of historical talent on history against the grain particularly with regard to uh chinese history there's another guy maybe you know uh, maybe you've heard of him by the name of benno benno oh, yeah, weiner yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, Benno came on a couple of times uh, to History Against the Grain. You know, his his um, his book was getting published on on uh, you know the the, the revolution and, and Chinese Revolution in Tibet, and uh, he uh, had outlined in the introduction to his his book uh, had outlined what I thought was a spot on. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, observation about how these how's the, how these things go. That is the the kind of co-optation of history by power. He he said history, and this is Benno now, often serves as the battleground on which competing visions of the nation are fought. Who should be included and excluded? 
where natural boundaries begin and end. This almost always requires a process of simplification in which inconvenient details are forgotten and pre-modern logics are repurposed in the service of more recent presumptions about identity, loyalty, and sovereignty. So, uh, yeah, again, that's from Benno's uh, The Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan Frontier. And I think it speaks, you know, extraordinarily, extraordinarily well to what we were witnessing and, and thus why we were having to examine, you know, the very sort of granular basis for these ideas of stories of national histories, in particular U.S. history, in the case last summer, um, you know, the, the, even right down to our teaching of them, right, Josh? Yeah, I, I, yeah, definitely. And the thing that, that I, you know, this is making me think is that um, this, this idea of a history without borders, that one of the, one of the ways that plays out is you, we really see, because we talked to this, this variety of, of scholars talking about a, in a variety of different fields, talking about a variety of different subjects. But what has really struck me again and again is that no matter what the field is, no matter who it is that's the focus of, of their, the, the, the scholar's work, is that there's always some broader lesson about history within, within those works. That, you know, if you're sufficiently historically minded, right, if you're uh, sufficiently curious about history, you should be able to read any book about any, any subject and find something valuable, right? Something that revealing about history, at least if it's a, a good work, I guess. But, um, mm -hmm. and I think that's something we found is that, you know, whether it's, uh, Jeremy Best's book about about German missionaries, which you know wouldn't inherently kind of fit into uh, the stuff that w we've been thinking about, um, was revealing to me of so many things about the creation of the modern world. Um, you know, Vincent, uh, his book on politics of the past in ancient China, um, again a, a subject that I, I spend some time teaching about, but I will be admit don't think about all that much. And then you see, oh, it has all this relevant stuff. To say about the practice of history, Benno's book about uh, about uh, the Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan frontier. Again, uh, it's a very specific topic, something that um, I haven't spent that much time reading about. But there's there's wisdom and there's uh, ideas there that are relevant no matter what particular branch of history you, you focus on. And so I think the, a good lesson is, um, you know, as historians, to to have that curiosity, to have that willingness to read beyond your field, because you're going to find stuff that's useful in, in, you know, uh, in all these different fields and all these different places. And I think this is particularly an issue for, uh, for, you know, within your field is that I think too many American historians don't read outside us history. And it, it, it helps create a lot of those bad narratives that, um, that, that you were talking about. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that you are able to see your field so clearly is because at a certain point you made a decision that you were not satisfied with the literature you were getting in, in U.S. history. And, and you started to branch out and you started reading more stuff and you started thinking more globally. And I think it's pretty telling that where you got to, right, from doing that, which is um, a completely transformed idea of, of what history, U.S. history is, what it should be, and maybe whether it should be. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really inspiring to watch your evolution uh, through this process, um, which, you know, didn't totally start from, from this podcast, but is, has developed in, in really fascinating and, and, um, and incredible ways. Well, thanks, partner. You know, I mean, look, uh, and, and you're perhaps uh, unchar uncharacteristically modest right now because <laughs> you've, you've been a big part of that for me. You know, in other words, the reason I wanted you uh, to get hired at, at American River College is because you were bringing uh, 
you know, that world history degree from a top flight program and a great mentor, Pat Manning, you know, and I thought, heck, if, if we can get you teaching there in Davies Hall, you know, um, just selfishly, that was going to be, you know, uh, a real coup f for me, right? And so, right. yeah, it was that idea that, you know, as I had gone through a, a doctoral program in U.S. history, and then and then gone to conferences and done a little bit of publishing and 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 taught at a university, et cetera, that it was all feeling incredibly um, almost ill-fitting, too parochial, I guess, you know, would be mm -hmm. one way of saying it, you know, too narrow, too local, too insular, too um, uh, not not worldly, you know, and I was getting that feeling. And, you know, I mean, teaching world history on the one hand was a way to help me pay the bills because those were the <laughs> classes that were available. But what happened? And, and I had a great colleague, you know, I've, I've mentioned before, Henry Bargwin uh, at Weber State University, who had been doing world history all along and had had no patience for that kind of uh, parochialism, you know, that he saw mm -hmm. in, 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 you know, his own department and in the curriculum and, and et cetera. Uh, so we get, you know, we get Vincent on the program, right? We get Benno on the program. We get Ali Anushar on the program, and more recently, Shin Fan. And these uh, folks, uh, Molly Warsh, you know, and, and Pernilla Wu, these, these folks are all scholars on the front lines now, you know, of a discipline that is taking a hard look in the mirror. And, and that means examining the very basis of our own conceits and our own storytelling naivete, if you will. You know, I went back to Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who a few years back wrote An Indigenous People's History of the United States. And, you know, here I'll, I'll read a, a quote from her that, that I think will sound familiar in terms of what we've heard Vincent and Benno and our other folks saying. Uh, Roxanne writes, writing history, U.S. history from an indigenous people's perspective requires rethinking the consensual national narrative. That narrative is wrong or deficient, not in its facts, dates, or details, but she says, rather in its essence. Mm, inherent, so inherent in the myth we've been taught is an embrace of settler colonialism and genocide. The myth persists, not for lack of free speech or poverty of information, but rather for an absence of motivation to ask questions that challenge the core of the scriptive narrative, the scripted narrative of the origin story. How might acknowledging the reality of U.S. history work to transform society, she asks. That's, that's incredible. Well, you mentioned uh, Molly Warsh and, and Pernilla Rouge uh, a bit ago. And, and I want to turn to them a little bit because we did a, a few weeks, I think, on basically the early modern world. And both of them mm -hmm. have these fantastic books exploring that early modern world in, in very different ways. They're both also colleagues and friends from uh, from Pitt in, in Pittsburgh. But um, I think, you know, the thing we got from them as, as we kind of continue, and I think this, this does jump off uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's uh, quote that you, you, you just gave us, is that when you start looking at that early modern world as as we did and then uh, as 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 they did uh, in their books one of the things that should become clear is that the the directionality of history has been imposed upon it that that there is no trajectory uh, there's no architect there's no plan that essentially modernity emerged out of a complex mix of short-term self-interest improvisation crisis experimentation 
And it only seems inevitable in, in, in hindsight. And I think, you know, when we discuss that early modern world, that's the thing that we, we kind of latched onto is that there's no plan here. There's no, there's no destiny here um, that it was a mess from the start. And what that means ultimately is that in the structures that get built up over these past 500 years, there's all kinds of, of flaws. Uh, there's all kinds of, you used the, the, the metaphor of water damage uh, a bit ago, but, uh, or a few episodes ago. Um, but that the foundation of, of the world that we live in is, is essentially constructed upon this immensely unstable foundation uh, that's built not because some people in, in Europe had the foresight to build this, this thing on, on a firm foundation, but because they and, and the people they encountered in, in you know, the, the dialogues and, and um, interactions between the world's people resulted in certain outcomes that only after did we impose that directionality, that destiny, that inevitability upon. Um, and I just want to quote from, uh, from Molly Warsh's book. She's talking about pearls. So she has this, uh, this lovely book, American Baroque, about, about pearls and what the pearls reveal about the early modern world. And she says, the heyday of pearls corresponded with the earliest years of Atlantic experimentation, a violent and improvisational several decades. <laughs> Nobody knew what they were doing. They were figuring things out at that moment. Uh, one of the things that Panilla pointed out about the French plantation economy in, in the Atlantic is that everybody knew, right? You could, she found so many different correspondences of, you know, people from uh, in, in Paris or, or Versailles writing to people in, in Martinique or Saint-Domingue or, or, you know, one of these plantation islands. And they're just listing all the problems, all the reasons why this system could not last. But instead of trying to fix the system, all they wanted to do was make it work for another day. Right? That's the entire goal of French <laughs> imperial policy was just to keep this foundation, uh, you know, keep this thing on its foundation for another day, another week, another year, so they could keep benefiting from it for as long as possible with the understanding that it could not possibly work over the long term. And I think that that revelation there, that idea there, mm -hmm. to me was revelatory because oh it, it, God, it is yeah. so, um, it puts it in perspective so much about where this all came from. Um, and it's not a bunch of geniuses <laughs> building this. It's a bunch of self-interested individuals uh, just trying to hold on to that self-interest for, for as long as they can. Yeah, to wring one additional drop of profit out of a, of mm -hmm. a dry well or something. I mean, it, I don't think it's going too far. Well, it isn't because this is how I felt about it. It's a stunning insight. Yeah. You know, uh, that that both Purnell and, and Molly were on to there. You know, I, I'd actually chosen a different Molly quote was over the course of the 16th century. It was trial by error. There yeah. was no certainty about how things would turn out. And then a little bit later in the American pearl fisheries, life was a jumble. <laughs> yeah. You know, a jumble. Uh, people thrown together. You know, we love quoting Pernilla's um, line about polyrhythmic history, you know throwing people together with different interests, different uh, statuses, uh, different motives, uh, different power, you know, and, and gosh, you know, the way it gets retrofitted in the telling of the national history is it's almost like intelligent design, isn't it, Josh? Like, oh, yes, this or, there was an all-knowing, omnipotent seer who created this history from the beginning, you know, by design. But that is just a lie. And it's a total it, lie. Yeah. Oh my god. It's, it's like evolution. It's more like evolution where you got like all these parts that don't make sense and you got a tail for some reason, but you don't, there's no the tailbone and you got like an appendix that doesn't do any good. Um, yeah, that, that, that this whole thing was built by 
you know, random tinkering where instead of getting rid of things that didn't work, you just kind of built another uh, scaffolding to hold it up for a little bit longer, uh, understanding that it was not, you know, engineering, it, it engineered in any kind of way that could last. It's such a different way of, of, of thinking about this world. Um, and it's become such a, a, a profound part of the way I now teach about the creation of modernity in all my classes, to be honest, right? Not just my world history classes, mm -hmm. but also my Asian classes mm -hmm. that this was, uh, this was not a world constructed by some kind of omnipotent overseer, as you, as you said. Yeah, and, it, and I tell you, an additional reason why this is critical is we get back to our idea of, you know, stories that make us sick versus stories that actually help us heal is if you assume that this was intelligent design, you know, uh, the way that, say, George Bancroft, the great American historian of the 19th century, wrote, you know, in his history of the United States as if, you know, it all sort of sprang from the head of, I don't know who, Elizabeth I or Walter <laughs> Raleigh or somebody, you know, one of these early American, you know, sort of iconic figures or early modern, rather, iconic figures is that uh, if that's the case and it becomes mythologized that way, then when you run up against a present reality that in no way is explained mm -hmm. in that mythic account, and I'm thinking again about George Floyd, you know, that indelible image of, of a dying George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis, the story, the way it sets up can't explain that, you know? Yeah. And so well, we're, yeah. we're, we have to accept this discordance that because the story doesn't explain that, in any way uh, to our satisfaction, you know, it's it's that greeting card that gets handed from person to person, but it, it doesn't actually speak to anything, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're actually experiencing or witnessing that uh, we have no alternative. You know, we don't, in other words, we don't have a constructive resolution unless, you know, we continue, uh, we just continue to pay homage to these bankrupt stories. Um, and le which leave us then in the same straits, you know. So the only alternative really is to tell that truer, better story as Molly, I think, and Brunella and our guests have tried to, to, to tell us that this was improvised from the beginning. We shouldn't feel the least bit bad, therefore, about dramatically changing aspects of the system that we've inherited. Isn't that right? That's the, that, to me, that's the key point, right? That this, yeah. there's nothing about this system that is inherent, that makes sense, uh, that was designed. I mean, the, our Constitution is maybe one of the best examples of that, right? If you see the Constitution as something handed down from on high, right, full of uh, created by by geniuses and, and <laughs> the prophets. miracle of Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, that, then then we're stuck, right? Then that's it. We we got to yeah. we got to stick with this. But if you if you understand that this was a document that was based on self interest and accommodation and uh, and negotiation and everybody hated it at the time and uh, nobody thought it would last and uh, and it was based around you know a slaveocracy in many many cases well then it comes to be seen as you know like a lot of things that there's some good ideas in there there's some terrible ideas in there there's some dangerous ideas in there um, and then we can really approach it in, in, in a way that well maybe we can actually make it better is that, yeah. is that possible well um, you know and it's not like me to give a bunch of slave owners credit for something but you know i will credit them with this the framers they understood that because that's why they created an amendment process mm -hmm. you know they said this thing is going to be needed uh, it's going to need to be fixed 
right? Uh, and that's why that you know it's so maddening. These conservatives, you know, who talk about original intent, and yeah. you know, we see it in the judiciary, for example. What utter fuck, you know, bullshit is this, Josh? Mm-hmm. Because the 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 people who created, and, and you're absolutely right, they were men of interest, definable property interests, slave owning interests, political interests. But even they knew that the reality was that society would continue to evolve. And the interests of their day may well not be the interests of a future day. And God, weren't they right about, uh, uh, about that after all? And that there would have to be a mechanism for change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, when you say stuff like this, you're, you're told, well, you're negative or you're cynical. But I mean, this is something we've been saying from the beginning is that, no, no, we're actually optimists in that we believe that the world as it is doesn't have to be this way. Whereas those people who just, you know, see the past as, as leading inextricably to, to now, right, as part of the, some kind of trajectory or destiny, what they're telling us is that there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do about it. We're trapped right. on this. Now, they might say that the thing we're trapped on is good. But, but what we're trying to say is that what history shows us is that there's no necessary reason why things have to look the way they do. That this was a series of mistakes and choices and improvisations that there was violence throughout this, that there was domination throughout this. Short-term interests. Short-term interests. And that, you know, if we recognize that, then maybe we can begin to craft something that, you know, in the same way that, that as we said, history is, is in service of the present, not the past. We can, you know, essentially use this to construct societies that actually, you know, reflect the reality of the world we live in rather than like the 18th century, which is a weird basis to create a society around. Um, and, and, you know, maybe then we can have a human civilization that survives for more than the next 20 years. Um, and uh, so, again, that, that's optimism. It's not cynicism. Uh, but it takes looking at the past and, and being willing to, to see what really was there as opposed to what you want to see. Man, you made several good points there. And I'm, I'm going to say, you know, in part, you know, what, what the implication of what you're saying is that, you know, we need to tell these these different stories because, Folks, we're trying to avoid the sixth extinction here. Mm. You know, I mean, it's not too much to say that if we continue on the course we're on, you know, and, and we've talked about America as a failed state, only slightly tongue in cheek, I think, you know, that that we are talking about a dramatic series of crises that we're going to face with no real guarantee that they can even be resolved. And, you know, we saw some of that on January 6th in the insurrection, uh, you know, at the, at the Capitol, the National Capitol building in Washington, D.C. So here's here's what I want to say, Josh, to finish out this segment, you know, before we go into our final segment. And it's picking up a thread of, of something in your last uh, comment, which I thought was so spot on. You know, you said that sometimes the, the response to telling these stories a different way, to telling more complicated, more contradictory more conflicted, so is to somehow you know shoot the messenger and say, well, you know, what do you, you know, you're, you're an ingrate or something, mm-hmm. you know, you're not worshiping the right gods anymore, you know, and uh, you always hear that line about, oh, democracy is the worst system except for every other kind or something right. like that, you know, um, and 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 in in the age of patriotic history <laughs> that that you know we seem to be passing through. You know, it's easy enough to to kind of villainize or demonize those who who make these appeals for for new stories as if, again, as if you're throwing out the old gods, you know, what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to change the faces on Mount Rushmore or something. And, 
you know, what we're saying is, no, we need to get rid of Rushmore. But anyway, <laughs> here's what I want to do. I want to say, you know, from one of those sources that we've, you know, we've gone back to again, Michel Foucault, right? Uh, this guy, uh, this uh, scholar Sam Holder wrote a piece about uh, Foucault and he says, you know, what Foucault dubs effective history, an abandonment of analyses grounded in sovereignty is explicitly required. Historical investigations must not reveal the unitary, eternal necessities promised by philosophers of the past, but instead reveal the lost events, the traumatic, disjointed continuities connecting historical epics, and the narratives of struggle outshined by discourses of the sovereign. And for once, the whole truth was clear. Well, okay, Josh, so you know what I like about that? There's a lot I like about that quote, but, you know, let's focus just for a second here on Foucault saying, you know, an abandonment of analysis grounded in sovereignty. Uh, listen, the question for our outro today is where, where do we go from here? Where do the stories go from here? And I guess one thing I want to say about that is that how about we look for stories that are a little less adoring of power? What do you what do you think? We need to right because so much of the stories and, and you know as we've discussed, so many of the stories were told. So many of the the fundamental stories of particularly national stories are all about telling the story from the perspective of power. And so what that tends to do is not just present these stories as, as the correct stories, but it tends to drown out those other stories as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you look around the world and you see you know, this, this era of crisis we're, we're in. And, you know, I mean, really look back over the pre previous 100, you know, 100 plus years and how often crisis has been the order of the day across across the world. And, and maybe we can start asking, well, or start su suggesting that maybe these people we've been lauding and putting in statues and maybe they weren't quite so right about a lot of stuff. And maybe we should we should bring in voices who weren't party to those those discussions and have no um, had no uh, ability to to um, influence the way the world was created in a direct way, and and hear what they had to say about it. And you know, I've tried to highlight mm -hmm. voices like um, Amy Sedaire, certainly Jalal Iyamad, Akbar Il Al Habadi. Um, you know, voices who again were subaltern people who were um, colonized people who were um, trying to understand their place in in the world. Uh, I was looking back at the interview I did with Andre Juice, the Haitian artist and art writer, and uh, the the thing that you know the conversation we I had with him was was uh, incredible in both you know the recorded one, but actually I might say that the conversation I had before we recorded was was just as good. And I remember that we we had talked for a long time. We were talk talk for maybe an hour and a half or something like that. Not a recorded, just kind of kind of figuring out where the conversation was going to go. And I stopped at some point and I said, well. I love all the things you're saying. I'm just I'm just struggling a little bit to 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 turn it into a unified conversation. Right? So how are we how are we going to define this conversation? And he paused for a second, right? Not very long at all. And he said, "How can we exist in a world not of our own making?" 
And that just, it just floored me. It gave me goosebumps right at the moment. Mm. How can we mm-hmm. exist in a world mm. not of our own making? And that, that question is the question that millions of people had, had asked, billions of people had asked across this modern era. And what they were constantly told is, well, it's not your job to make this world. It's your job to exist in a world somebody else made. And yet, even despite that, so many people, men and women, people uh, who were colonized, people who came from, uh, you know, uh, from lower classes, people who came from from ignored uh, uh, groups or, or, uh, or countries, they're all trying to fundamentally answer this question, how can we exist in a world not of our own making? And I think, you know, some of the greatest writing and thinking of the 20th century, we'll just focus on the 20th century right now, late 19th, early 20th century, were people who were essentially seeking to answer that question. What can this world be other than uh, what we're told it has to be? Yeah, that's pretty profound, isn't it? Uh, in other words, and, and as far as that translates into then the histories we, we write, look, I mean, sometimes I think maybe the greatest misconception you know, of what, what we do, what historians mm-hmm. do, is that, uh, and, and you alluded to this at the beginning of the uh, broadcast today, you said, you know, this idea that, that what, what historians do is, you know, we're trying to preserve the past. But, but that's not quite the case. I mean, sometimes I think history is presented as that, you know, as if the past were, what, like a bug trapped in yeah. amber, you know, that, that could never change, or, you know, as I'd like to say, a slave trader trapped in bronze, you know, a statue that could never change. That's, that's problematic for what we do. The, the past is always changing from our perspective, mm-hmm. right? Because what we really want to know or should, I think, want to know is how can we problem solve our present and future with reference to a past that actually in some way speaks to us. So now getting back to your point with Andre, you know, is if if we're trying to resolve issues as we should be in our world today, as what the last year has taught us we must do, and that many of those issues involve folks who were never part of the power bargain to mm-hmm. begin with, right? Um, you know, again, the indelible... Uh, unforgettable in the sense of unable to quite forget the image of George Floyd, you know, dying uh, in Minnesota on that street, that if we're trying to resolve these problems, then we're dealing with folks like George Floyd who were never part of that power bargain to begin with. And what would history then mean to Mm -hmm. them if as like a bug trapped in amber the only thing it could show them was the power that created this dilemma for them in the first place, right? right? In other words, the, the reason why we have to change the narrative and to focus on different stories to get off that lane you were talking about, that highway, without the, uh, you know, without the exits and the off-ramps, is because the, the scene never changes. You know, the statue mm-hmm. never changes. Uh, and, and because it doesn't, it doesn't have anything really to offer, you know, the folks who are on the wrong side of that power bargain like George Floyd was. Yeah, and you just end up asking the same people who created the problems in the first place to now solve the problems, right? Which just further elevates their stature and elevates their... And mm-hmm. then they get the chance to then pat themselves on the back for for doing things. You know, this goes back to the thing we've mentioned many times before, but 
you know, you know, British, the British uh, congratulate themselves for abolishing uh, slavery or abolishing the slave trade. And then maybe not mentioning quite so loud that they were the biggest slave traders of, you know, maybe in world history across the 18th century. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we can just, you know, maybe don't mention that quite as loudly, but then uh, give them give them credit for then abolishing this thing that they helped, helped build in the first place. At a certain point, you got to start asking different people for, for those answers because the people who have been, you know, in charge, the people who have built this thing are the worst possible people to ask because the whole thing is, is built up to support to benefit, uh, to serve their their interests, and they're going to be the last people you want to ask how to dismantle this thing. I I thought we were going to get through this broadcast without mentioning Piers Morgan. Oh my God, yeah, <laughs> because you know, I mean, really, yes, they abolish slavery as a system, but then other systems of oppression, you know, are put in its place to the point where now we have a royal family divided over the color of a baby being born and a uh, well-known, you know, broadcaster in Britain storming off the set because, you know, it's suggested that that his views on it are, are retrograde, you know, on this racial view. So people, you know, whether you call it white fragility or, you know, being wedded to a statue frozen in time, are, are simply unable to see past the limitations of that narrative. And when it's suggested that we should see past, those narratives, their um, response is, you know, one of, um, you know, a bitter resentment, yeah. really. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes it goes back to, I mentioned Akbar Ilalabadi a, a bit ago. It goes back to this this poem that uh, we both, both read and, and both kind of ultimately uh, reacted to. He has this really simple verse and he just says, um, so again, he, Akbar, if you don't remember, is, is a Muslim, uh, Indian Muslim, growing up in in India that's increasingly dominated by the British. And uh, one of these guys who very much, you know, often is would be called conservative, uh, but that does not at all sum up what he was and how he thought. And so the, the poem in question, he says, what do you mean, progress association? Listen to me, I'll tell you how it's done. He owns the buffalo who wields the cudgel. Titum, 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 titum. I don't know what the last part is about, but... Uh, I mean that's it, right? He owns the buffalo. Wheels, well, the beat who goes on. The, the there beat you goes go. On. Yeah, yeah. He who owns the buffalo, who wields the cudgel. I mean, the song never yeah. changes. That's right? that's it. Yeah, for that's power. It. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I remember at the time thinking it was, you know, really, again, so uh, you know, relevant mm-hmm. to what we were seeing play out in this country. And look, you know, when when people and and sure, okay, Pierce Morgan, somebody picked from the the news cycle, uh, you know. We're not going to be talking about Piers. I think next episode we're going to dedicate uh, to him, right? Maybe beefing yeah. with Piers. Uh, we got to get back to that. But but seriously, it's more emblematic of something, you know. And and often the critics, those folks, would say, you know, when taking down the statues, you're trying to censor history, trying to make us forget our past, and and that sort of thing. But that's exactly not what what we're trying to do. Look, I, I'm willing to say that a collective memory, a shared memory in some basic sense, is a useful and maybe even necessary thing for us as inhabitants of this single planet to have, you know. Uh, but that's not the same thing as saying, therefore, uh, a collective memory that is dictated by some particular moneyed interest. Uh, or some military or let alone racial mm. interest, which is what I think nation state histories, those are the collective memories that nation state histories begin instilling in us when we're kids, you know, in school. And 
it's not that obviously that that wedded to power notion uh you know what usually gets framed as some kind of patriotic history that I'm talking about, that either of us are talking about, mm-hmm. right? You know, we're talking about a sense, a shared sense of our collective origins on this planet, uh, our strivings to build lives, uh, you know, homes, families, um, you know, to make the investment in some, you know, humanity, uh, our storytelling traditions in particular, uh, all of which play out again on this shared planet. And, you know, it had me thinking, uh, Josh, had me thinking of the astronauts. Mm. Of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because these guys, <laughs> and naturally, right, uh, is that, you know, many of these guys, and actually the story began with a woman, a NASA astronaut, a woman um, from a couple of years ago uh, who, uh, you know, was separated from her husband and her child for three months while she was at the space station. And, uh, and it led her to reflect on, you know, on, on the sort of the existential, you know, uh, facets of all this. And it led me into a kind of deep dive after reading her comments. Uh, astronaut Scott Kelly, you know, who the, the, the good thinking people of Arizona have elected uh, as their senator. Uh, Scott Kelly, I thought, nailed it. You know, he said, seen from space, the Earth has no borders. And he was talking about the spread of the coronavirus, mm-hmm. right? Showing us that what we share is much more powerful than what keeps us Apart, and I couldn't help even think of what Shen Fan said on our last episode. You know about the need to get beyond the tunnel view to see the bigger world and to share in the experiences of that larger world, particularly as historians with with other historians from other places. And so, yeah, the, the unlikely source for this are these astronauts because it wasn't just Scott Kelly. It went back to the Apollo astronauts. And it, it, look. If you, if you think of some guys who are probably rock-ribbed, patriotic, uh, you know, military dudes like the, like the original Apollo astronauts, mm-hmm. right? They make kind of unlikely, what, unlikely uh, poster boys or something for this, uh, this new, new form story that we're talking about. But listen to what some of them had to say, like James Lovell from the Apollo 8 mission. He said, you don't see cities, you don't see countries, you don't see boundaries from space, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, everyone should have that view to see the earth as it really is, said Lovell. Uh, Frank Borman, uh, another astronaut, we, we do all exist on one small globe. Uh, in fact, Borman was inspired to read an Archibald MacLeish poem, going back again to the 60s here, to see the earth as it truly is, writers on the earth together, brothers who know uh, now that they are truly brothers, well, okay, you know, I mean, you get the gist, right? These boundaries we have are really artificial ones, said Frank Borman. Uh, in fact, Bill Anders was even disappointed. He said, I don't think the Apollo program has yet brought about as worldly a view, as interlocking view of humankind as I'd hoped, mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and so, yeah, all right. So I'm, you know, I'm reading, you know, the, the uh, recollections here of these astronauts, who I'm sure at one point would have been very squarely in the center of that kind of U.S. nation state sovereignty history. And for all I know, uh, you know, they, they still are. But, but what they had to say about the humbling effect of, of what a, of a perspective change. I mean, that's what really the point I'm driving, you know, is when you change your perspective, mm-hmm. You know, suddenly you are capable of 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 imagining, you know, a story, right? That actually speaks to the needs, 
you know, of the world we've created. Yeah, that's no, it's beautiful. Um, I, and I think that, you know, the last point in particular that it's, I, I, I might have said this in episode two or something like that, but just that, that need to change our perspective, the need to see things from a different angle is, is so vital mm-hmm. um, in thinking about mm-hmm. our world and, and the world's people because, you know, we, we are taught in these public, in public schools or, or for that matter, private schools, which uh, exists for a purpose. Um, you know, I, I love public education. I, uh, in, I'm part of public education. My wife's a teacher. Your wife's a teacher. Uh, public education means a lot to me, but let's not kid around about what it was intended to do. It was intended and it was invented at a time in which nationalism had first come into being. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the key goals, if not the key goal, was this, uh, this kind of citizenship thing, this civic pride sort of thing, that it was meant to teach children at a young age what it meant to be part of the nation, to inculcate them into the national idea, to propagandize them. Um, and, you know, it's no surprise that the, the world of the 20th century end up, ended up the way it did given that that was the education that so many people went through. We don't live in the 20th century anymore. We don't live in the 19th century anymore. We live in a world in which we can go online and, and literally, you know, see satellite views of the planet. We can see, you know, we don't have to be astronauts to see that, that global view anymore. When they went, were going up in the, in the 60s, you know, they were the only people who had ever seen the Earth from that perspective before. But that's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to mm-hmm. actually have to be willing to, to take that perspective Right to to go and look at the Earth from that mm-hmm. from that level and see what it looks like when we do that, but also and I think this is really important um, not be afraid to also get to the ground level um, and see the way that that humans actually live their lives. I think it can be dangerous mm-hmm. to just take that global view uh, because it takes away the humanity. Right, then we're all just this undifferentiated mass. Uh, there has to be a way to understand the common humanity while also reveling in the diversity of, of this world, um, the differences, the, the, the taste and the colors and all these things that make humans human. Um, we don't want to get rid of that at, uh, to, to any degree. I, I think of, once again, Amy Césaire, he talks about uh, losing oneself in an emaciated universalism. He says there are two ways to lose oneself, walled segregation in the particular or dilution in the universal. My conception of the universal is that of a universal enriched by all that is particular a universal enriched by every particular, the deepening and coexistence of all particulars. And I think that's just such a beautiful way of kind of getting across, you know, we can be a people, a human people, uh, while also retaining these things that make us us, make us particular, make us interesting. Uh, Well, yeah, fantastic. I mean, uh, yeah, and I think, you know, look, I'm not unaware, you know, that by by citing some NASA astronauts, You know, I'm, I'm drawing from what might be considered, you know, one of the, the chief expressions of triumphal nationalism. Right. You know, the whole Space you know, race, putting yeah. a man on the moon thing. Um, but, but I'm thinking of, of you know, of, of this country. And I'm, and I'm, I'm thinking how parochial and, and culture-bound within that nation-state frame of storytelling, you know, all, all of that has left us, you know, including not just our students, but but those of us who teach, you know. And so, you know, extracting ourselves from that literally in that case meant, you know, getting off the surface mm-hmm. of the planet. But I love what you say about from the ground level because that's where we live yeah. after all. I mean, you know, with all, all due respect to, uh, you know, Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos who you know, are trying to hightail it to Mars or whatever – you know, we're, we're, we're here. We're terra firma, you know, and, 
I was thinking back to an earlier episode, Josh, you know, where I talked about the Anishinaabe, who, you know, the Indian, uh, Native American Confederation mm-hmm. of the Great Lakes region at the time of the colonies, and then later on talking about the uh, the Pueblo peoples of the, the, you know, mesas of northern Arizona and New Mexico. And so I guess what I have in mind, you know, for U.S. history is to take the, the U and the S as emblematic of the nation state, uh, take out that punctuation, as I said in the last episode, and talk about the the story of us, you know, and uh, I I think from the ground level, from the the, the mesas of Arizona, you know, or the uh, you know the sandstone mesas of of Arizona and New Mexico, or or maybe from the Great Lakes, you know, tributaries of, of Canada and, and northern Michigan, uh, that from that ground level, looking east, it looks very different than the manifest destiny story of triumphal progress and power, you know, standing on the Atlantic coast moving west. And uh, we have to unlearn that narrative, mm-hmm. you know, and see it from a different ground, uh, a ground that didn't get integrated except insofar as it was seen as the cost of progress. You know, as students will sometimes say, it's terrible what happened to the Indians, but, you know, we wouldn't have been the nation yep. we are today. Well, no. No, 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 that's not sufficient uh, because that's the narrative talking. Yeah. You know, that's the inculcation, uh, you know, of, of the conditioning of a narrative that it like a catechism gets repeated over and over again. So what do we learn when we look at the history from the mesas? You know, we look at the history from the, the Great Lakes. You know, what we uh, first thing we should have is some humility. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like Shin Fan said in our last, the part at the end of our, our interview with Shin last time we loved so much, he said, to get beyond the tunnel view, to see the world, mm-hmm. you know, to get beyond the tunnel view, and to see the world from, therefore, different landscapes, different vantage points, um, through different cultural lenses, you know, because ultimately what we're talking about is a way to tell a story that nurtures our better virtues. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot, you know, I guess I'm at the age now where you, you start thinking back a little bit and uh, um, thinking about the... You mean existentially, not professionally? Yeah, well, a little uh, bit of both, yeah. But just, you know, okay. not necessarily even... Um, just thinking about the, the journey, you know, that I have been on uh, mm-hmm. intellectually and, and kind of thinking about the... Because, you know, in many ways, your intellectual journey almost has a kind of genealogy to it, right? I think this is, you know, yes. if you talk to anybody who's been to grad school, who's uh, in academia, there is a, there's a genealogy. There are people along the way who they feel as if they've learned from, that they've uh, inherited from. And it's a powerful part of who we are. I was talking to Shin before uh, the interview the other day, and, and we both had Pat Manning on our, on our dissertation committees. Um, and so I said, oh, we're cousins, right? <laughs> it's like we're, we're, we're cousins. Um, and I was thinking about somebody I hadn't thought about in a, in a long time. Uh, and he's a, a, a professor at UCSC, he's now, now retired, um, named David Sweet. And David Sweet was the first first person you know, in academia. So as an undergraduate, still no idea what I wanted to do, no sense that where this was going to take me. The first person who really... Uh, you know, inspired me and he introduced me to world history for that matter. Um, and he is uh, this incredible uh, figure who, who kind of was raised, I think his, his father was an itinerant Baptist preacher. Uh, so he, he grew up in Ohio, kind of going from town to town with his dad preaching. And, 
he was a Baptist preacher who um, was also happened to be a communist. Uh, so it was a funny, funny kind of marriage there. Um, but his preaching was all about social justice and equality and this sort of thing. And so David grew up in that context, eventually spend, spent uh, many years living in Latin America, I think eight years living in Mexico City, um, and eventually made his way to Wisconsin. Wisconsin at the time, University of Wisconsin, I should say. University of Wisconsin by the 60s was one of the only uh, universities in the country that offered something like what we would call World History Day. The program was was led and, and constructed by a another scholar named Philip Curtin, and Philip Curtin had created this program called uh, what was it called Comparative Tropical Histories. That was the closest they could get to world history at that time. Mm. Um, but essentially, what it was uh, at a time when this was not really available was history of of non-white people, right? Not European history, not American history, but history of what by that time was called the Third World. And, and David Sweet knew that he had to be in that program. That he would never be satisfied doing traditional history. Um, and so he uh, studied under a number of people at, at Wisconsin, but uh, particularly was inspired by, by Curtin himself, who was an, an Africanist. Um, and, you know, again, a, a kind of burgeoning, what we would now call world historian. He wrote books on the slave trade. He wrote, wrote books on, uh, on, on merchants in, in world history. And I, I, I was reading this piece that... Yeah, kind of a legend, kind of a legendary absolutely. figure. Absolutely, yeah, really, yeah. In the, the, yeah, profession. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I was reading this piece that, that David Sweet had written. It was a commemoration of, of Philip Curtin. And he has this, this point in which he's talking about, you know, having arrived at Wisconsin uh, with, you know, a sense of, of an idea of what he wanted to do. And he, he says, you know, I knew that I was there to study history because history has a moral purpose, right? He knew, he knew in 1968 what we, we've been talking about now, that history has to have a moral purpose. And so he talks about <clears throat> spending time you know, learning from these these scholars who uh, were, were at Wisconsin, particularly um, Philip Curtin, and he says, um, in Phil's case, right, so in, in, in terms of him learning from Phil, he says, in Phil's case, this created an extraordinarily productive dynamic because on the one hand, he presented a vision of the global past that was astounding, compelling, and subversive of existing paradigms, and he did so wonderfully. On the other hand, it seemed to me always that he was soft on imperialism, complacent about the rise of capitalism and the damage it had done to the world. So while entranced by his pedagogy, I would sit there muttering to myself about how to improve upon it. <laughs> I, I, I love that so much because I think there's a tendency yeah. now to, to see things as either good or bad, right? To see things as either useful or useless. And I love that, you know, uh, David Sweet was sitting in, a, in these classrooms in the, the late 60s, you know, fired up, right? An idealistic guy, a guy who had his own vision for the world. And when he saw that Philip Curtin was maybe not going after imperialism to the degree that he wanted, that he was not maybe um, anti-capitalist enough in the way he presented the material, what that didn't lead him to do is just say, well, therefore, Philip Curtin is useless to me. What it led him to do is say, well, what can I take from this guy and what do I need to do to make this my own? What do I need to do to get that moral message across that I feel needs to be part of the history? And to me, that was such an inspiring thing and such an important reminder that that this is what we're, we're doing. We're not just accepting, you know, the baggage of our predecessors wholeheartedly. We're not just taking it all at once, but we always have as, as scholars, as thinkers, as individuals, we should always have that willingness, that ability to take that which is useful, to put our own spin on it, to make it ours, uh, while also understanding what we owe to those who came before us. Well, that's, uh, that's some fine... Um, uh 
aspiration for what we do, mm-hmm. Josh. You know, uh, and I tell you what, if we're if we're still here a year from now, doing another retrospective, I hope it's because uh, over the next you know uh, thirty eight episodes, we were able to bring history to our listeners that fulfilled David Sweet's ideal. Yeah, and I, I do want to say because this is this has been an episode where we've basically talked about what we got out of our own podcast, right, in some ways. Um, but I hope mm-hmm. that, that all of you who have been listening, and I want to thank everybody who's been listening, um, that you're doing the same thing, that you're getting what you can from us and then, you know, going in your own directions with it as well. Because, you know, I would never say we don't have the, I would never say that we have the answers to anything, right? We're struggling with this. We're, we're uh, having conversations about this. We're trying to figure this out for ourselves as opposed to coming to you as as people who have, achieve some kind of enlightenment or pari nirvana nirvana or anything like that we're not ready to ascend to a higher plane where we're people who are um reading and thinking and talk about this stuff because we want to find better answers we want to find better questions mm-hmm. at the same time um and so if this podcast is anything it's a it's a place for us to ask these questions and to try to come up with some of the better answers no doubt and i hope uh i hope folks will come along with us on another year of uh, of exploration uh, excavation and I don't know, occasionally the best we can muster some kind of explanation. (laughs) I like it. All right. Well, that was episode 39, our year of living historically. Take care, everybody. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one goes in your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now what's going on in these streets? You can't you see on TV, stuck, stuck in a cycle, so we repeat, stuck, stuck in a cycle, so we repeat.